Please pray with me. Lord, what wondrous love. What wondrous love is this. Father, in that love we pray that you would send your spirit, that we might have an encounter with Christ this morning, that we might be filled with a hope that overflows an assurance of the truth in his name. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, just this week, I got to write my first report for the annual meeting that we just held. It hasn't quite been a full year of ministry for me just yet, but even so, enough has taken place in the eight or so months that as I went to write this report, my mind started swimming of uh, the memories and the things that have taken place. And I was taken back to a particular memory from confirmation class, which I led with Charlotte this past fall. And um, this, this happened early in the class, um, one of our first meetings. And uh, one of our, well, one of our more pragmatic students had, had a question, a very astute question that he asked me about confirmation. He said, what's the point? <laughs> well, that's a good question. And I had planned to spend weeks and weeks and weeks explaining exactly the depth and the richness of what confirmation is, but I also knew that I couldn't get into all that right now. I'd lose them. At the same time, there was an opportunity before me to capture the interest of these um, young uh, uh, confirmands, and so I, I quickly began to formulate an answer in my mind, and I, I began by saying, well, well confirmation, it's, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the, the church to celebrate and to formally recognize the faith that you are taking for yourself, the faith that you have received and been brought up in, and their eyes began to glaze, and I saw that I was losing them. <laughs> and so trying to, to ride a sinking ship, I, I quickly interjected. After you're confirmed, you get to vote in the annual meeting. <laughs> Needless to say, this did not quite excite them in the manner that I had hoped that it might. Turns out, teenagers do not share the same excitement for annual meetings that new priests do. <coughs> Decidedly so, their response was complete indifference. And you can't really blame them, can you? I mean, we just, we just had our annual meeting. My guess is if you weren't in that one, you've been in one before. If you've been involved in churches at all, budgets and, and delegates and, and reports, these are not exactly the most adrenaline-inducing aspects of the faith that we share. And if we're being honest, well, then sometimes neither are, are Bible studies and disciplined prayer routines, pledging, giving of our time, uh, in a routine and disciplined manner. It's not always the most exciting aspect of, of what we do as Christians. And if we're truly being honest, really honest, well, Sunday morning worship sometimes doesn't quite pack the punch that the rest of our week might pack. It's important that we take time, and God gives us time throughout our days to to step back and to take a moment and to reflect on ourselves and on who we are and our motivations and what compels us to do certain things. And so this morning, that's exactly what I want us to do. I want us to take a look 
And I want us to reflect for a moment, because if we are the smart and pragmatic people who have, who have finite time and finite resources, the people that I know that we are, then the question that we have to ask ourselves from time to time is, what compels us to do these things? What compels us through the mundane? So if you want to open your Bibles uh, or look in the uh, bulletin that's before you, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, our passage from chapter 1, beginning at the 29th verse, and we're going to see um, what the writer of the Gospel of John has to say about this question that is before us. We're going to take a look at two responses to encounters with Christ that are detailed um, in this passage, the first being from John the Baptist. Now, John had already gained himself somewhat of a reputation for um, baptizing Jews with water. This was an uncommon practice. It's, it's common for us now um, that we would be baptized with water. But back in the day of John the Baptist, this was far from common. Maybe a Gentile would be baptized with water to bring them into um, the faith, to bring them into the people of God, um, the, the Jewish people. But for a, a born um, Jew to be baptized with water, this was, this was sort of beyond the pale. And so we see uh, just before our passage in verses 19 through 28 that John the Baptist receives a visit from some officials. And these officials have some questions for him about who he is and about what exactly it is that he thinks he is doing. In verse 25, it says that they asked him, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And in our passage, beginning with verse 29, we begin to see his answer to that question, why he is doing these things. Verse 29 begins and says that seeing uh, Jesus walking towards him, John the Baptist uh, exclaims in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a profound statement. And, and it might be one, if we've grown up in the church, it might be one that we're familiar with and we've heard before. But I don't want the familiarity of that statement to rob us of the power that it has. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But as the passage uh, continues in verse 31, John the Baptist says, It's for this purpose that I came, baptizing with water, that this man Jesus might be revealed to Israel. And then he goes on to explain how Jesus was revealed to him personally at Jesus' baptism. He says in verse 32, if you're following along, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then having begun with that profound exclam exclamation that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he ends in verse 34 with another. He says, this is the Son of God. See, friends, John the Baptist had an encounter with Christ at Jesus' baptism, and it's an encounter that has not left him, not left him for even one second. And when he sees Jesus walking towards him, even at a great distance, 
he is immediately flooded with memories of that moment, memories of that encounter. He remembers how he saw that Jesus, this Jesus, this man who's walking towards him was the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb that dates back to the Exodus reading that we just read. The lamb who has no blemish. The lamb whose blood marked those who were to be saved the night that death would reign in Egypt. The lamb who is to be taken and eaten with imminent expectation and hope of freedom. John remembers this as he sees this man walking towards him. And not only that, but he remembers the lamb of the prophet Isaiah. He remembers the lamb who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, upon whom was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Seeing this man again walking towards him, now all of this comes flooding back to John the Baptist. And he remembers, this man is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. And this man is the Son of God, the Savior. He is the, the suffering Savior who takes away sin and restores relationship with God. And we see in these pages, John the Baptist worships. He worships Jesus and proclaims loudly the truth that has been revealed to him in his encounter. This is John the Baptist's response. To his encounter with Christ, he is compelled by what is made known to him about who Jesus is. He is compelled to worship him. Now, the second response picks right up, verse 35. So we just finished off with verse 34, and then we pick right back up. And this time the focus has shifted. It's not on John the Baptist responding to Christ, but now the focus is on his two disciples who are with him. So we see in verse 35, Jesus again is walking towards them on the next day. And again, John is compelled to worship and he proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God. And this time his disciples uh, pay a little bit more attention. They recognize, wait, this man is important. And so they begin to follow after Jesus. They leave their teacher in order to go see who this other person is. And after a brief exchange, Jesus invites these two disciples back home with him to learn from him and to presumably share a meal with him. So in verse 39, it reads that they came and saw where Jesus was staying and they stayed with him that day since it was getting late. The 10th hour, as the um, scripture says, is about 4 p.m. Nightfall was not far off. And so they were going to spend the evening with Jesus, learning from him. And having now spent significant time with Jesus himself, the gospel writer reports that Andrew, one of these two disciples, went straight away in verse 41 to find his own brother, Simon Peter. And what is it that Andrew says to his brother? Read along in verse 41. He says, we have found the Messiah. Now John, the gospel writer, he's writing in Greek. He's writing to a primarily Gentile audience unfamiliar with the Hebrew and Aramaic languages. So he takes a moment, you'll notice, he takes a moment to explain what this decidedly Jewish term means, Messiah. So he says Messiah, and then in parentheses he says, which means Christ. 
Now, if John was writing to us, if he was writing uh, in English to a primarily secular audience, what he would say is Messiah, which means anointed one. Anointed one. Now, that might be enough uh, with some context clues of this passage for us to, to get the gist of what Andrew is saying to his brother. He's saying, this guy is important. This guy is different. This guy is, is special. But his brother, Simon, would have heard something uh, much deeper. And with a little bit of digging, we can understand what that is. Now, because of circumstances, I've done that digging for you. But my goal today, and it's actually happened at each service, which is surpassing my expectations, which is fantastic. My goal is that somebody will stop me afterwards and say, I want your sources for this. That's my goal. Take it if you will. The challenge is there. But here are the things that uh, Simon Peter would have understood his brother as saying when he used that term Messiah, the anointed one. These come straight out of the Old Testament, out of the Jewish scriptures. He would have known that Andrew was talking about a man of God's choice, appointed to accomplish a redemptive purpose for God's people. And also to be a judgment on the foes of God. A man who is given dominion over the nations. And yet, behind all that he does, behind all of his activities, the real agent at work would have been God himself. This is what Simon Peter heard his brother saying with incredible excitement and joy. We have found the anointed one. This is Andrew's response that the gospel writer documents for us, that he has an assurance of truth on who Jesus is. We have two people, two encounters, two responses. One man compelled to proclaim the hope that he has in Jesus and another compelled to share the truth that Jesus has led him to discover. As you read through scripture, these are not uncommon reactions to encounters with Jesus. Also, uh, not uncommon, primarily from enemies of Jesus, are reactions of anger and fear and outrage. What I want to leave you with this morning is that what is uncommon, and what I would say even plagues the church today, is a reaction of indifference. Indifference to who this man is. Our passage this morning, it's full of, of outrageous claims about who Jesus is. Lamb of God, Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah. These all mean something. A claim has been made. And whether you know Christ or not, we all share one thing in common. And we've lost the luxury of indifference. So my prayer this morning is that this would be a moment for us to reflect, that, that this would be a moment for us to take stock about what compels us, what motivates us. What motivates us not just through those adrenaline-packed moments, but through the mundane. How do we see Christ at work in our lives, even in annual meetings, in, in prayer groups, in Bible studies, in the daily discipline of life? Because Christ is there. He's present. And he's compelling us 
forward. When our eyes are set on Christ, our hearts are full of hope and assurance in who he is and in what he has done. My prayer is that it is that assurance and that hope that will motivate us forward. Amen.